going to be in 1 Kings 17 today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity we now have to study your word together. Lord, we long to hear from you, and we know that the best place to have that happen is from your word. And so we ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would encourage and challenge and talk to us, Lord, today. Make your word come alive for us, we ask. In your name, amen. Please be seated. Many summers uh, before Karen and I came here, uh, we lived in the Detroit area, and for many summers uh, I would lead <clears throat> groups of students into different places in Mexico to do ministry, and uh, many times it would be a two or three week, two or three weeks that I would be gone. And one summer I was down there setting up for my trip, and I re- visited the you know some another group that was in a <clears throat> excuse me another group that was in Mexico serving already. It was a big big group, a number of different churches. And I pulled in to, to visit the person that I knew and to ask him some things. And as I looked around, I noticed that there was a, I mean, a whole bunch of teens were, you know, in dorms and were sick and not doing well. And it turned out that, uh, you know, they used bottled water, the five-gallon things, and they had a company that they asked to bring 100 bottles of those every three or four days. At one point, they brought two or three of those bottles that were tainted, and, of course, nobody knew that until about 40 or 50 kids got really, really, really sick. And so we got there on the day when that was happening, or just after it had happened, and uh, I was uh, talking with a guy, and he says, yeah, he says, it was, it's terrible. He says, we've got some kids that can't get out of bed. I mean, they're just that sick. And um, he told me the story. And, and the thing that struck me as, as, as I'm going to share the story with you is that all of their churches and their small groups and, and their youth leaders led them in prayer and led them in things like saying, Lord, give us your strength, give us your health, give us protection, give us the opportunity to share the gospel. So there's these prayers that have been going on for all these kids. You know, God, keep them healthy. Help them be able to minister effectively. So, you know, that being said, now you've got 50 40 to 50 of them are just sick as a dog. And you're thinking, hmm, but we prayed. Anyway, the camp had a special deal with a Christian doctor. This was on the Mexican side of the border. And they knew a Christian doctor who um, would come if they needed help. And they told him what the situation was. He said, well, I can't see 50 patients today, so I'll bring another doctor with me. He called up a friend. And uh, they both came out. And so they started treating all of these kids. And I said, one of the doctors was a believer and the other one was not. And uh, they got to the end of a very long day treating all of these kids and giving them what they needed. <clears throat> and, and in that process of doing all of this work, the Christian doctor had been witnessing to his friend and explaining why these people were here and what they were doing. And at the end of the day, they were getting ready to leave. He had a chance to lead his friend to the Lord. So did God answer prayer? Yeah. He said no temporarily to the health of about 50 kids. So that a doctor would come who needed to hear the gospel. And then he heard the gospel and he received it. They shared that later with everybody there and those kids were cheering 
just so excited that even their sickness was something that God could use in order to reach someone for Christ. And so it was just one of those things where you you look at how we pray sometimes and you wonder, you know, I prayed this, but this is what happened. Or I prayed this and God said no. Uh, you know what? God knows what he's doing. And this is a great example of that. These kids learned such a great lesson. Now, as we get into Kings, we're going to be in Kings for a little bit now. Um, Chronicles is, is about Judah, the southern kingdom, and mostly just those kings are being dealt with there. Once in a while, there's a little bit of crossover and connection like there was last week when we dealt with, with uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab. You go to the kings, and the kings are basically about the kings in the northern kingdom. Okay, and so we're going to be starting with Ahab. We're actually going back in time. Last week we dealt with Jehoshaphat, and he intersected with Ahab at his death. But we're going back in time. And and as you get into these passages, as we get into First Kings and look at some of the kings from Israel, you begin to realize that there's a shift in the book of Kings so that you're talking less and less about the kings and more and more about Elijah and Elisha. Now, it's how they interact with these wicked kings, but from chapter 17 of Kings to second chapter 9 of Second Kings, it's all about those two prophets and their interactions. So we're going to take some time in the next few weeks to just take a look at the, at the prophets and their interaction with the, um, with the kings. Now, the prophets, let's go ahead and put that next slide up there, Tim. Thanks. Um, their role, we saw this last week, so I'm just going to go through it quickly. The role of the prophet was to speak out for God, uh, to be a covenant watchdog. They were the people saying, hey, let's, you know, let's repent, let's get back. Uh, they were to point out idolatry and injustice, constantly point those things out. Um, and then the, the last two, they, they were to repent, t- teaching people to repent and follow God and, and reminding Israel that they were supposed to be a light light to the nations. And um, so those are the things that, that prophets were supposed to be doing. And we see that in the life of Elijah and then also in Elisha and some others. Um, now prayer has been an integral part of all of this. And we see that Elijah was a man of prayer and God used him, I think, mightily because he was a man of prayer. Um, Elijah the prophet basically served from 875 to 855. Primarily, he was dealing with Ahab. He touched a little bit with some others, but mostly it was it was Ahab. So let's jump into um, first part of this, and we're going to jump into James. It should be right there in your notes. James five sixteen through seventeen is where we're going to start our study of Elijah. It says this in verse sixteen: the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Long time. So I love the fact that he starts out by saying, hey, Elijah's just like us. He's nothing superhuman. He wasn't something that, you know, God took out certain genes so he could be even more godly than the rest of us. Nothing like that at all. He's a man just like us. But he prayed earnestly. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And in that area of the world, that's a serious prayer. You know, you're looking at very short periods of time when there's actually rain. And uh, he's praying that it would not rain at all. And so why why would he do that? And let's go take a look at Deuteronomy. We find out exactly why he chose to pray that prayer. 
Um, Moses told the people of Israel, if you turn away from God and you worship idols, especially if you take up worship of the pagan gods of Canaan, Baal, Asherah, any of the rest, then he said this, then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. Elijah knew God's word, and I believe he was praying this scripture as a prayer. I believe that he was praying, God, what is happening here in this kingdom is hideous. It's evil. Would you stop the rain? Stop the rain. Keep it from coming so that your word will be fulfilled, that people will realize you are the one that brings this stuff, not Baal. Baal has nothing to do with it. And so that's what he prayed, knowing... This is the crazy part. He prayed that prayer knowing that he was asking God to doom the very country he was living in. This is a country where the impact's going to be everybody. You know, it's mostly an agricultural country. And so you've got other things going on, but they're all dependent on agriculture. And so you start saying, don't let there be any rain, and all of a sudden you are destroying this nation in, a very, in an incredible way. So now let's go to 1 Kings. Those are the, the setup. I think I believe he knew Deuteronomy, and, I, and James tells us that he started to pray that it would not rain. And then in 1 Kings 17, Now Elisha the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, and here it comes, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years. Except at my word. Boom. That's incredible. Now, a couple things that you need to kind of think through. He's gone to Ahab. Ahab is, is the king over uh, an area where Baal is the ruler of this area now. He's put up a temple and an altar to Baal. And his wife is Jezebel, and she's the daughter of the king from up <clears throat> up in, in um, Sidon, and the, and the reality is that was, you know, Baal worship is all they did. But Elisha, his name means, my God is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the God's personal name. The name of the God of Israel was Yahweh. And so Elijah, just coming before the king, his name says, hey, I'm here representing the true God of Israel, Yahweh. And um, he uses that phrase, he says, as the Lord God lives, and that word Lord is the word Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, this is the one I serve, this is, this is who I am representing as I come and speak to you today. He says, I serve the Lord God Yahweh, and there will not be dew and there will not be rain for the next few years. Okay, hear that, next few years. And so it basically says, hey, God sent me to do that. Now, one thing we need to understand about Baal. Baal was the god of fertility. He was the god of storms. He was the god who controlled the rains that were supposed to come to make the land get ready to receive the seed. That was Baal's job. That's what they believed. And so Elijah comes in and says, oh, by the way, my name tells you who I serve. I serve Yahweh, and Yahweh's made a decision here that you are not going to have any of the things that you think Baal brings. You're not going to have any rain. You're not even going to have dew. 
It's all over until I say so. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah in verse 2. Now remember, he's, he's before Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel have been very, very much against the prophets, have killed them whenever they could. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and high in the Kareth Ravine, east of Jordan. And go ahead and put that first map up there. So this is the map of Israel. Uh, you see the southern kingdom, Judah, down there in the green. And then you've got Israel. Now this is probably at a different time frame. Uh, Judah was probably a little bigger right now as we're reading this, and, and Israel was a little smaller. But uh, Elijah came from the side on the, on the east side of of the Jordan. Let's go ahead and put the next one up there. So just to kind of put it in perspective, the big red arrow is where Samaria is, the capital uh, of Israel. And then on the right side there, that's Gilead. It's also the place where we think Tishbe, where where he came from. And as he sends them back to the certain brook, that circle, we think, may represent that. So let me go back and read the verses. So he says, I want you to leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. Now, God tells him to go and hide. There's no indication that he came ready to do that. Uh, unless God told him ahead of time, pack a bag, you're not going home. We don't know that part. That, that would be speculation. But as he's standing before King Ahab, and he gives him the word of God... Immediately, immediately God says, says to Elijah, get up, go. And you go east of the Jordan to the, to this particular little place. I'm going to keep you safe. I'll send the birds to feed you and there'll be a brook there that you can get your, get your water from. And it tells us that that's exactly what happened. The birds came in the morning. They brought him bread and meat. Came in the evening. They brought him bread and meat. My guess is he was probably living in a cave somewhere in that little, uh, you know, kind of in a, a real arroyo there, if you're going to use the Spanish word for it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he he's just there. How long, we don't know. This is the hard part. If he announced this drought, to, or this stopping of the rain to come, at the end of the dry season when the rains were supposed to start, and that's where most people think he did it. So in other words, they've already had all of the, the long time when there's no rain, And then when the rains come, that's when they start gearing up and getting ready to plant. And if it was right at that point in time that he said, guess what, no more rain, then you're headed for some really, really long and dry times. And no crops would be planted. And that's probably what what he did. One of the reasons, just implication here, one of the reasons I started with James is that kind of gives us the whole story, doesn't it? It tells us that he's the one that started praying for his own nation and praying that God would do something powerful. Um, James 5, 16, 17, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. You know, he was praying, Lord God, this nation needs your judgment. This nation needs to realize that you are God and Baal is not. So would you do what you said you would do in Deuteronomy? Would you just shut the rain down? Don't let any rain come. And so you've got this going on. And James also tells us that one of the reasons this could happen is that he was a righteous man. Elijah in a country where there were very few of them, there were some, there were some, but not many, was, was praying the prayer from Deuteronomy 11. And I really do believe that's what he was praying. Lord God, shut the heavens. That's what you said you would do. Please do what you said. And, and, um, waiting for God to do that. And he's praying earnestly, God, stop, stop the rain. And then God calls him to be a prophet. 
Isn't that incredible? God says, okay, I want you to go to Ahab and tell him. So he does. He tells Ahab, and he says, now it's time to get out of town because, you know, Ahab and Jezebel will kill you if you, if you linger around here. Um, I wonder what Elijah did during that whole time down there in the cave in the ravine, and I wonder how long he was there. We don't know. Sometimes the scriptures madding, madding, manning, it makes me mad because I'd love to get more detail. There's a better word for that, but that was the one I could find. <laughs> um, so it, it, we don't know. I mean, if it was at the start of the rainy season and the rains didn't come, that brook was going to dwindle and eventually just dry up because that's what's going to happen in the whole country. Um, but I'm, Elijah just spent all kinds of time praying. And I think on the one hand, Elijah was saying, Lord, you need to judge. You need to judge the people who have turned away from you. Start at the top and, and judge these people. I don't know about you, but have you ever prayed that God would judge someone? There have been times I wished he would. <laughs> um, I don't know that I've ever said, Lord God, would you judge them? Because part of that it means that I would think I'm, I'm a whole lot better than they are and don't deserve any judgment, and so I don't. But... Think of what Elijah's done here. He said, I look around and this is evil. Everything going on here is evil. There's, there's all of these things going on with Baal and Asherah. There's an immorality. There's, there's sacrifices even of, of, of babies. And Lord, this, this has got to stop. And so he prays as a righteous man prays and prays. Now, I wonder, many times when we pray things, we, do we, do we understand that we might have a part in the answer. I mean, he's praying, God, stop the rain. And God says, okay, I'll stop the rain, but you go tell him. And so he's now involved in the process. And he was perfectly happy to be in the background praying for God to do it. But now God says, I want you to go. I want you to be part of the answer to this prayer. You go tell him. And then God showed he was going to protect him. How many times do we pray, do we realize that When we pray, maybe one of the things that needs to happen is that we're somehow more involved in the answer to that prayer. Uh, And and I don't mean that in the sense of Elijah, but sometimes we ask for things and we ask the Lord to do things, and it it may very well be that what the Lord is saying is you can be involved in this and causing this to happen, Mark. Will Will you step out? Will you do what I've asked you to do? Now, as far as we know... Elijah didn't make any plans, like I said, to, to go to go away. He was expecting the judgment that would fall on the nation would fall on him. Now, how would that change our prayers? We're praying for God to do something pretty, pretty drastic, realizing that we're going to be kind of around when it all happens. So he's praying for a drought. Well, the drought's going to impact him too, and he knows this, and he prays it anyway. Because he knows the nation has done the kinds of things that need to be dealt with. And so he, he does that. Elijah's prayer, and just kind of came up with these as I was going through. He wanted to walk with God. That was one thing he wanted more of. Um, he wanted to pray earnestly. He, he was dead serious about this. We don't know how long he prayed. For God to stop the rain before God said, okay, let's, let's send you to tell Ahab. But he prayed expectantly too. He was saying, God, you know, you can, you can do this. You have the power. This is something that's in your word that you said you would do. And, and you see, anytime you're praying and asking God to fulfill his own word, that's a pretty powerful prayer. 
He's saying, God, you said you would do this. Please do what you said you would. He prayed persistently. He did not quit. He kept on praying, kept on praying. Like I said, we don't have any idea how long it was before he was sent, but he kept praying. And I'm sure during that three and a half years, he was praying, Lord God, bring your people back. <clears throat> and then he was willing to be a part of the answer. Um, God sent him to take very bad news to a very bad king. This king has killed a lot of people for no reason at all. Just because he wanted their vineyard, he killed one of them. And so here we are, and he's saying, I want you to go. I want you to go, and, and I want you to give this horrible news to Ahab. That's what I'm calling you to do. It's interesting, those teens who got so sick in Mexico learned some lessons they hadn't planned on learning. They learned some some lessons about how God answers prayer. God does not always answer prayer in the sense of, oh yeah, well you'll all be healthy and happy and everything will go great. Sometimes God says, I will protect you and keep you even though you're going through some really hard and difficult things. There are times when we work with people and we pray for God to do things in their lives or even in our own lives, we may get discouraged and feel like quitting. And those are the times we need to say, Lord, I don't even understand what's going on. I'm not even sure I know how to pray, but I want you to work. And so we keep bringing the situation or the person before the Lord, trusting that he knows how to pray. There are many times I'll say, Lord, I don't know how to even pray for this person, but this is who I'm bringing to you today. Would you touch their heart? Would you encourage them? Or, Lord, would you challenge them, whatever the situation may be? So one of the challenges I think we get from Elijah is the whole idea that prayer is something that God calls us all to. Now, I don't say that to try to make anybody feel guilty uh, or to lay any kind of a hard task on anybody. Just a reminder that that's how we communicate with our Heavenly Father. So Israel, um, you know, it's the dry season, and now it's going to be a drought for a number of years. And um, verse 7 says, sometime later, guess what? The brook dried up. Okay, so he still has birds probably bringing him bread and meat, but there's nothing to drink anymore. And the word of the Lord comes to him. Look at what it says in verse 9. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded or ordained a widow there in that place to supply you with food. So let's go ahead and put that map up there so you get a sense of where this is. Again, from that little circle down below us where he probably was heading up, traveling not through Israel because there's a whole lot of people looking for him uh, who want to get rid of him. <clears throat> On the outside, probably to Zarephath. Now, you'll see that Zarephath is in Phoenicia. And uh, that it's just below Sidon, about seven or eight miles. And that, of course, is where Jezebel's dad reigns as king. And that is the center of Baal worship for everywhere. Sidon. So here you've got Elijah, whose name means Yahweh, going to the very heart and center of Baal's kind of Baal worship. And he's setting up camp there for a number of years. Stop and think of, I guess, the irony of that on one level. And I think the other statement that's being made is God is saying, 
Who's Baal? I'm not impressed with Baal at all. You know, I can stop the rain, and and as we get into this section here, we realize he stopped the rain up there too. Um, On one level, sending Elijah to, to Zarephath to find a widow and have this widow take care of his needs there while they're waiting for this drought to, to end several years later, was God's way of saying, Baal is powerless. He can do nothing. And until I say so, it's going to stay this way. Now, in any national crisis of that time frame and in that part of the world, any time there was something like a drought that came along, normally the people that suffered the most would have been the fatherless and the widows because they didn't have other people to come along and help them. So verse 10, he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And typically in in that culture and in that time frame, you were supposed to be good and kind to strangers. So if someone came and asked you for a drink, you were supposed to provide that for them. That's just something culturally ingrained in everybody in that time frame. And so he said, would you bring me a, a drink of water? So she's going to get him some water. And he says, and bring me a piece of bread too. Um... He says, please, in there, but he says, and bring me a piece of bread. Now, Elijah was either too weak to go any farther. Uh, we don't know that, but it's a possibility. He's been traveling a long time, probably without food, maybe without water. Uh, or, the other side of it is, this may be his testifying out of, this is the, this is the widow God sent him to. If she'll come back and bring him a piece of bread and, and a drink, then this is where he needs to go. Um, <clears throat> so, The interesting thing is her response to this. Verse 12. As surely as the Lord, Yahweh, your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. So she's destitute. This lady is in bad shape. She doesn't have anything She's got enough for one more meal. <clears throat> and Elijah's request is, yeah, you know, give me a drink and would you bring me some bread too? And she immediately turns around and responds. Now, the interesting thing is she knows he's Jewish because she responds with, as the Lord Yahweh your God lives. In other words, in, in, I'm, you know, I'm swearing before him that what I'm going to tell you is the truth. That's kind of what she's saying here. I, I don't have it. We're getting ready to die here because... Time is up for us. Now, Elijah could have been thinking, so what's going on here? God sent me to a widow that was going to take care of my needs, but she doesn't have any idea about that, and she has no clue. But look at what he says in verse 13. This is really fascinating to me, the way he, this kind of unrolls. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. Think about what he's asking here. He's asking a widow with a son who's just said, I don't have anything. I've got enough for one last meal. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Go ahead and get me the water. Make a loaf for me first and bring that, and then make make bread for you and your son. 
And, and you sit there and you think, holy smokes, is it, what is he, selfish? I, can't he share? I mean, you're, you know, there's all kinds of thoughts that may go through our minds. And um, you wonder what in the world's going on. And he says this, For this is what the Lord God of Israel, verse 14 says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So Elijah said, You may be wondering how and why I can ask you to make a loaf for me. Well, you need to understand this. God has already said you will have bread every single day. You won't have to worry about it. It will be there. And that's why he could say, so go ahead and, and, and bring me that loaf. Now, possible there's another three years still that they're waiting. Verse 15, she went away, did as Elijah had told her. And then it says, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up. The jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So for the next three years, they've got food. You know, they, they are able to live. And I love the fact that because Elijah is with this widow, he has saved the life of this widow and this little boy. He's, he's there. God is providing for all of them. And he's doing it miraculously. Now, again, we wish that we would have a little more information here. I mean, was it just that every time she dipped out, it filled up to that same point? Um, or did it all disappear and, and then reappear during the night? I mean, I, I, these are the questions I have, which aren't really deeply theological in any way at all. But, but those are the questions that run through my mind. The reality is, it didn't run out. And that's the truth that we have to think through. Every day, there was just enough for that day. There wasn't any for tomorrow. There wasn't any for next week. It was just for the next day. So there's an implication here. Um... Verse 15, he, she went and did what Elijah asked her to do. And, and he said, first make me that cake and then some for yourself and your son. And there was food every day. And verse 16, again, the, the flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. Came across this quote. She had been called to risk her last meal and to trust the promise of a foreign God. Yahweh was not the God of the Sidonians. God, Yahweh was not the people of Zarephath's God. Now she knew who he was, and she was trusting Elijah's God. Isn't that incredible? But she went away and did exactly like Elijah told her. And the end result is three years' worth of food. Three years' worth of enough food to keep them alive and to keep them going. This other quote I found encouraging too. God was consistently faithful meeting the need just in time every day. The widow and her son and Elijah were forced to rely on the provider, not the provision. So every day, instead of getting all excited about the flour being there and the oil being there, they were excited about the fact that, look, God did it again. And they looked back to God and said, thank you. The next part of the quote is, in the process, God revealed that he alone, and not Baal, (laughs) was sovereign Lord of all. Of all, and awesome? Right in the heartland of Baal himself, God says, watch this. I'm going to feed a widow and her son and Elijah, and it's going to be really something I can do without even, uh, it was no big deal. And one of the things that, that struck me in this then is just thinking it through. 
Never look past the giver to the gift. Never look past the giver to the gift. God deserves all of our praise, all of our adoration. So we don't ignore God by focusing on his blessings. One time in Detroit, we had uh, purchased a, a used car, and, and we enjoyed this little car, but it wasn't long before all of a sudden there was all kinds of problems with it. The car was in really good shape except for the engine. <laughs> the en- engine wasn't working, and the brakes were great, tires were great, you know. And one of the guys at the church was a mechanic, and he could easily pull engines and take them out. He says, you know what, let's get a new engine for the car, and, and, um, and you know, then you'll be all set. And I said, man, we don't have the money for an engine. He said, well, you know, I'll talk to my parents. They'll, they'll loan us the money, and we'll, we'll put an engine. So we were, we were at camp working, and we came back, and sure enough, the car was in great shape. The new engine was in it. And then we went out to lunch with the couple who had provided the, provided the money for the engine. We were expecting to kind of figure out some kind of a way to pay this back. <clears throat> While we were at lunch, they said, oh, by the way, don't pay us back. Now, what would it have been like if at that point we ran out and started playing in the car because it was so exciting, rather than sitting there with this couple and saying, thank you. It's the giver, not the gift, that's the most important thing. And they gave us an amazing gift, and we were able to say thank you. Thank you for being God's hands and feet in this situation for us. Let's finish out the chapter quickly, verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, "What what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now again, remember, she's speaking out of a deep mourning. That's part of it. The other thing, she's speaking from a pagan background. And so she's thinking that Elijah came into the house and suddenly brought God's attention on her and showed God that she, you know, she was a sinful woman. And so God was going to take her son in order to pay her back for being a sinful woman. That's pagan. That is a totally pagan idea of God. And um, Elijah says, let me, let me take your son. And he takes him. And uh, Elijah was living in a, in a room on, on, the, on the upper level. He takes the boy to the room. He lays down, uh, lays the boy on the bed. And then, verse 20, he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, <clears throat> have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And then, verse 21 says, he stretched himself out three times over the boy and, cr- and cried to the Lord. Now, there's so much speculation as to what this means. We don't know. If someone says, this is what he did, maybe. We just don't know. All we know is that he did something, but the important part comes after that. And he cried out to the Lord. First time this has been prayed in in the Scriptures. Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. In other words, raise him from the dead, God. Bring him back. You can do that. And this is not something that anybody has prayed so far yet in Scripture. And so Elijah comes along, he sees this is happening, and he says, this, this can't be. And so he asks God to intervene, he asks God to bring him back, and God does. He brings back the son. Now, this, this quote, in the heart of Baal territory, God displayed his unsurpassed power. God has the power over 
nature, rain, crops, whatever, and he has power over life and death. And, and this is one of those lessons to this woman. Yes, you're getting this amazing food every day, but your son just died? That's okay. I can bring him back. And God did. Look, your son is alive, and um, she looked at Elijah at that point and said, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. What do we take away from this? I'm going to go back to verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, Leave here. Turn east and hide in Kirith Ravine. Uh, east of the Jordan, and then you'll drink water, and I'll send birds with food. And he immediately went, and he did it. Again, there's there's some urgency in his getting out of Samaria, because Ahab and Jezebel are not real friendly to prophets who bring bad news. And um, you know, with no news, the book dries up fairly quickly. And he says, now I want you to go to the heart of Baal country. I want you to settle down. Verse 9. Um, stay there. So go, find the widow, and stay there. Um, and you'll have food and everything that you need. Let me just ask a question. How do you live for three and a half years during a famine? Severe food loss, water shortages, and you're being hunted by Ahab and Jezebel. How do you live in the middle of that? I have the answer for you. <laughs> One day at a time. He didn't look down the road three years and say, oh man, I'm going to be here for three years. No, one day at a time. One day at a time, in total dependence on God, depending on God for strength. I I don't know about you, but I would love to be by a brook with a stream and see these birds bringing me this bread and stuff, but give me about a week of that and I'd be I'd be going stir crazy. I'd be saying, okay, all right, now I'm ready. I'm ready to get back into whatever, Lord. And I would imagine he was there for at least several months. So, you know, again, one day at a time in total dependence on God alone. God alone. He didn't know what was coming. And he goes up to Zarephath. And again, you've got this time frame where... Think of this culturally. (laughs) How many of you eat the same thing two, three days in a row? Eh, I don't mind doing that, but a lot of people don't. How'd you like to eat the same piece of bread for three years? I mean, that's it, folks. And she didn't have the option to say, oh, well, let's make this cinnamon bread today, or let's change it to some... No, it's just, you know, basic bread. You got flour and oil, and this is to make enough so that you're alive tomorrow. That's it. Three years. And one of the things we, we miss in this culture is that there's a lot of the world that doesn't have all the variety and options that we've got. A lot of the world is very, very much a subsistence living. Uh, when I grew up in Mexico, a lot of my friends, basically it was beans and rice two, three times a day. Once in a while you'd have something different. But that, that was it. That's how we grew up. So how do you follow God in those situations? One day at a time, depending on God, trusting Him. I love this, this next quote. It was a place of total dependence upon God. That's where he had to end up. Total dependence upon God... And the Lord demonstrated his sufficiency by providing food and water for Elijah and then later for the widow and her son. Isn't that awesome? Total 
Total sufficiency. Now, God had shown Elijah that you don't need anything else but me. God was more than enough. I think that was the message. I am more than enough, Elijah. You don't need anything else. You've got me. When I, um, even now, if you go to Mexico and some uh, family invites you home for dinner, they're going to feed you and they're going to feed you again and they're going to keep feeding you until you finally go, oh man, I can't eat anymore. And, and, and one of the things that you would say at that point is, es suficiente. Now, that means sufficient. But what you're not saying is, um, that, that's enough. It's okay. I don't, you know, I, it, it's sufficient. What you're saying is it is sufficient. Man, that is so awesome, the food that you gave me. I am stuffed, and I can't take anymore. And you're saying, es suficiente. Wonderful. Thank you, but please stop. I'm going to get sick. That's essentially what you're saying when you say that. So when we think of the sufficiency of God, it's in that category it needs to be. That is way beyond anything you could imagine or think. So do we believe that God is enough? Do we believe He really is sufficient? Do we believe that we need something more besides God? Well, Elijah is saying, no, this is all I need. He learned in by the brook and up in Zarephath that God was more than enough. He didn't need anything else. How many of us can say that that's true for us? It should be. God, you're, you're more than enough. Think of the things he faced. Isolation, loneliness, fear. I would imagine he faced boredom at times. And yet, he said, God's enough. God is sufficient. And the sufficiency of God's word is something that we talk about. We all have all that we need to live a godly life in his word. That's what we mean by the sufficiency of scripture. When we think about the sufficiency of Christ's death, it's that it's finished and nothing else needs to be added. Why? Because God is enough and His sacrifice is perfect and it's enough way beyond anything that could be asked for. So the question comes back, do we really believe and are we seeking to live with the truth that God is enough? Because that's what we're called to. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the lessons from the life of, of Elijah and some of the others. And Lord, may we grab a hold of that truth that you are all sufficient. Everything we need is in you. Everything we need is in your word. And you supply all that we need. May we learn and remember and hang on to the fact that you are enough. You're more than enough. So we thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen.